I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Pernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Matt, what's going on over across the pond these days? Dean, I had a really good sandwich and I need to tell you about it. <laughs> so in the United States, in North America generally... Uh, a sandwich is like meat, cheese, and maybe a vegetable thrown in there, right? Yeah, well, right. let me tell you something that's going to change your entire worldview. It's going <laughs> to, everything that you know, throw it out the window about sandwiches. Hold on, hang on. I, I've got to brace myself. I'm strapping in. I've got my seatbelt on. Hit me with the sandwich knowledge. Okay, okay, okay. So I went down the street, and there's a deli, and I walked into the deli for lunch. And I, and I was like, hey, what kind of sandwiches do you have? And the guy said. Um, <laughs> An insane question to ask someone. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But that's what life is like in Scotland. You just ask people that and it's okay. <laughs> and the guy says to me, yeah, hey, I've got a cheese and pickle. And I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and when he said cheese and pickle, I was like, well, that's going to have cheese on it and it's going to have a pickle on it. And I guess that's mm-hmm. a cool combination. I've never had that combination before in my entire life. So he wraps it up and he hands it to me. And first of all, let me tell you, it was on the best roll I've ever had. It was the bread. <laughs> it was it was crusty. It was delicious. It was great bread. Okay, but then it had a big hunk of like very sharp cheddar cheese on it, which is great. Okay, and then then there, but there was no there was no pickle. There's no dill pickle. It, pickle in in Scotland at least it means like a bunch of vegetables thrown together in like this like vinegary kind of sauce and i gotta tell you it was the best sandwich i've ever had it was so good <laughs> okay wait i have some questions about this is the sandwich hot is the cheese hot or it's just like cold no cold like a slice cold. of cheddar okay it's like a pre-prepared delicious deli sandwich that has just been kind of sitting in a, a deli case for you know a few hours wow that does sound like the dream. Uh, there is nothing like that. Even here in Toronto, a multicultural hub uh, that Canada loves to pride itself on. And I guess there just needs to be someone needs to open a Scottish deli around here. You know, I think that like UK food, we all know it. It's weird and usually bad, but they have the whole sandwich situation down. Like they know exactly what they're doing <laughs> with sandwiches and they've got some good ones over here. Um, so anyways, thanks for listening to this. This has been a, um, a new segment in our show where I tell you about a sandwich that I've eaten this week <laughs> and I'm sure right. it's going to well, get us it, a lot of Patreon subscribers. <laughs> I guess it does need a rating system though. So, uh, first oh, of yeah, all, of what's course. the unit of measurement and how does the sandwich, uh, fall on the scale? I think 
uh, for a sandwich rating system, I'm just going to go kind of a classic route. And I'm going to say, you know, you can, it's a, it's a system of thumbs ups and this is a okay. five, five out of five thumbs ups. Wow. You would need a lot of people. You would need at least uh, two and a half people to give that many thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, of course you would need that many people. Um, or one person with five arms. That's it. That's right. Well, um, this has been, as Matt said, uh, a not yet named segment um, where Matt does tell us about the wild sandwiches he eats in Scotland. So you can uh, send us all your great names for this extremely important uh, segment on the show. And I'm sure that we'll take them. Um, We're not talking about sandwiches, though, for the next hour. Surprise as much as. I'd probably like to (laughs) stop reading books and uh, just eat sandwiches and do a whole podcast about that. Uh, Instead, we're talking about a guy named Tissa Balasuria, an extremely interesting theologian that you've probably never heard of, or maybe you have. I don't know. I don't know what you read out there. Um, We didn't hear about him till it was too late. Uh, I guess it's not too late because we're hearing about him right now, but uh, later than I would have preferred. Okay, this is getting off the rails. Uh, On the podcast, you know, we've talked about a lot of theologians from Latin America and the Caribbean, Africa, the U.S., China. But uh, this week, we're going to talk about uh, a theologian from Sri Lanka. And there's a lot of interesting literature in Asian theologies in general that we don't really get to on the show. It's just kind of outside of our sphere of uh, knowledge, I guess. But Tissabal Surya is especially interesting because he uh, not only was kind of speaking to his context and talking about third world theology from Sri Lanka, etc., but he also had a really important structural role in uh, third world theologies generally. He was one of the founders of EATWOT, E-A-T-W-O-T, the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians something like that. I'm pretty sure that's it. <laughs> Eat what? <laughs> and uh, he uh, he had a lot of um, really interesting kind of commitments to like bringing theologians from across the third world together at all these meetings. He did a, a ton of kind of infrastructural work, I guess, to sort of make sure that, you know, theologies in Latin America were coming into contact with theologies in Asia and Africa. So really interesting character. Um, so a person who wrote a lot of interesting stuff, but also was like responsible for getting a lot of uh, liberation theology stuff and other kinds of folks um, in conversation. So we decided to talk about one of his books called Planetary Theology, which was published in English in 1984 by Orbis Press with an extremely cool book cover. Um, and there's probably a lot more to say about Tissabella Syria. Maybe I will say more about it in a minute, but I feel like I should pause. Matt, what's your maybe first hot take about reading uh, this particular book? Yeah, uh, Tissa Balasaria is very cool. My hot take is that he has something really interesting to say. Think about what evangelism might look like in a world that is not, uh, you know, solely reliant on Western models of theology and knowing. Um, I think that's really cool. I'm really excited to talk about that part in a little bit. Um, As a quick aside, the sandwich bit that we did at the the beginning is called Eat What? I've been waiting (laughs) so long to to make that joke. I'm glad I finally got there. A heroic yeah. level of patience displayed here. Um, yeah. We can only applaud. Uh, That's all you yeah. can do. <laughs> um, it is a, a great book, though. Like Matt said, it's really asking these critical questions about Christianity in the West. And it's super fascinating, I think, because Balasuria, he's a Catholic priest. He is in a minority Catholic country in Sri Lanka. 
And so he has to think about interreligious dialogue in ways that other theologians, I guess, don't have to by way of compulsion. He he has to because <laughs> most people around him are not Christians in general in the population. And uh, he was also a religious priest. He was a member of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, I'm pretty sure. Um, really interesting religious order. And what's really fascinating about Balasuria's whole approach is that he sees Christianity um, as a kind of uh, thing that has historically been tied to Western domination, but doesn't necessarily have to be. And trying to thread that needle, I think, is probably a, a question that a lot of people who listen to this podcast have a lot. It's a question that I definitely have a lot, and he's a good guide for it. So we're going to focus on just two chapters in the book. One is called The Christian Churches and the World System, already a great suggestive title if you know much about dependency theory and so on. And the other is called The Churches, uh, the Churches Called to Radical Conversion. Um, also interesting and maybe a provocative title since conversion is not really the, <laughs> the word I like to talk about very much yeah, in Christianity. But uh, uh, Belisari has me thinking about it, which is cool. Um, one last note, maybe by way of introduction. Balasuria, he uh, was a trained economist before becoming a theologian. That comes through. You know, a lot of theologians kind of go the other direction. They're trained in theology, and then they learn about the economy. Uh, Balasuria has lots of interesting things to say about economics, and then sort of, you know, operates as a theologian, so that's very neat. And uh, the other piece that we ought to mention is his biography is really wild. Um, he wrote a book called Mary and Human Liberation, and he was uh, excommunicated for a minute by the Catholic Church um, as a result of that book. And then he had a really prolonged uh, discourse with um, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time and others trying to kind of uh, argue that he shouldn't be excommunicated. And he did ultimately get rehabilitated and brought back into the church. Um, but that story is also extremely funny. Uh, he like the Vatican wanted him to sign a particular confession of faith and he didn't want to sign that one. But he was like, I'll sign a confession that was written by Pope Paul VI instead. And is that OK? And uh, so they did reach a, a compromise. And anyway, he uh, he was brought back in. But one of those interesting kind of rare stories of a, uh, a left theologian who did get excommunicated but who fought to get back in <laughs> to the church and succeeded. He, he did get back in. So interesting guy to learn about and uh, obviously a person with a lot of challenge to the church. All right, Matt, uh, let's get going here into the book itself. Um, this chapter, The Christian Churches in the World System, uh, what uh, really stuck out to you here? Yeah, for sure. A bunch of stuff. Um, I think it's a really interesting place for theology to really confront the ways that Christianity is like un has uncritically accepted Western capitalist masculine like heteronormative um, and oftentimes like misogynist <laughs> types of like um, values without really critically thinking about it and I think that's a great point to draw out so we'll we'll start there um, and I'll read this piece from Balisteria here and we just talk about it a bit so Balisteria writes. If it's true that the present world system is largely the result of white Western capitalist expansionism linked to male domination and pillage of nature, we must ask how the Christian churches related and reacted to this process during the five centuries of its evolution. Many Christians have been concerned with the injustices of the emerging world system and were deeply interested in science and the humanistic trends in Europe, but the Christian churches as a whole have not been open enough to the world of science to inspire it and tended to benefit from European expansionism without being critical of its deep inhumanity. 
I think this is a cool place to start because it's an important wor- word for, I think, Christians in the West. I mean, Christians anywhere, I think, benefiting from Christianity. It's it's important. This part is important. The only reason that you get really cool basilicas or big Gothic churches or whatever, it's largely because of the plundering of um, North America and the colonial project that went with it. I mean, and sorry, and also the plundering of South America and the Caribbean and Central America, all of it and, and elsewhere, even um, <laughs> Western powers know no bounds for who they're plundering and who they're not plundering. It's kind of all over the place. Um, I don't want to leave anyone out. But anyways, I think it's good. I, you know, this is, I think, an interesting way to kind of go about this conversation, though, because a lot of times in, well, in like more recent types of quote unquote radical theology where Christians are trying to kind of come to terms with this uh, inheritance of being sort of the bad guys of the world, um, you know, you get like the rejection of it. But it's even like sometimes an uncritical rejection. You know, I I think of um, I think of things even just like I, I don't mean to pick on this guy in particular because. I think he has his place within the conversation, but even people like Shane Claiborne or like, you know, like the whole Jesus for president type of uh, radical Christianity that sets people in a particular direction is interesting because it's kind of like participating in, in this um, without meaning to, or, you know, it's an uncritical rejection. It's just saying like all the stuff is bad, but not really thinking about exactly why it's bad in more uh, concrete ways. All I'm trying to say here is that, um, I think that Balisseri is right. Christianity has kind of uncritically just t- kind of taken these things on and not really thought about it. But also I think that Christianity in some like very trendy ways has also uncritically rejected these things in ways that are maybe unhelpful. Um, <laughs> I just want to just Steve, it's interesting <laughs> to point that out because uh, you think that just rejecting it would be enough. But I think that you have to do a little bit more work than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's more than one way to uh, reject um I don't know, Western capitalist modernity, right? Uh, right wing ways of doing it, left wing ways of doing it, um, ways of doing it that maybe are <laughs> more complicated or don't quite uh, map onto that distinction. You know, like the Amish are rejecting it in a particular way, for example. Yeah, that's a really good example. I guess I, I always, uh, instead of picking on the Amish, I always go to picking on Shane Claiborne. And um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't. But anyways, I think it's an interesting point, though, right? That like uh, the church has uncritically accepted these things. Mm-hmm. And also the church has uncritically rejected them. And uh, I, I don't know, worth considering both and how they might be problems. Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting, too, because in the book, uh, in this chapter we're reading, he's talking in particular about Christian churches and how they're related to that system. But in the beginning of the book, he spends a lot of time really parsing out what he thinks precisely the world system is and how it came into being and how it works. And I think it's really impressive to see theologians who are willing to get into the weeds of things like political political economy and uh, class economics and other things. What I really like about Balasuria is he he writes like an economist. There's lots of graphs. You can read all kinds of things about GDP and the gap between the rich and the poor and all that kind of stuff. But in addition to the economic story, he does, uh, I think, kind of uniquely have space for a discussion of uh, sex and race uh, involved as well. Um, I think some of those discussions are pretty dated, obviously. This was written in the 80s and by Catholic priests and (laughs) all kinds of other stuff going on. So we would have to probably work to um, update that language. But uh, he does, nevertheless, kind of recognize that, like, class is one incredibly significant thing. 
And also there are these other sort of dimensions of oppression that intensify uh, and have even their own kind of relationships to uh, to class struggle. Um, he also has a lot of time for national struggles as a person from the third world engaged in third world theology. So he spends a lot of time building up like what is the world system and what does it depend on? So it depends on capitalist exploitation. He'll tell you a lot about how that works, but it also depends on these other kinds of means of uh, separating and dividing and he goes as far as to talk about what he says is sort of a, a world apartheid system. Um, I think, you know, an interesting kind of note thinking about people like W.E.B. Du Bois sort of thinking through the the color line that divides not just the U.S., but uh, global development and so on. So there's a lot of like forward thinking stuff or maybe not even forward thinking, maybe like stuff that people would have talked about in the 80s that maybe we forgot how to talk about <laughs> now. Uh, and uh, it's it's interesting to then have a conversation about Christianity in light of that, like building that foundation of here's really the situation, the history, the mechanics of oppression, and then how does Christianity sort of fit in to all that? I think that's like a question that theologians these days, it's not like nobody asks it, but it just seems maybe not as commonplace as it might have been, you know, several decades ago. You're right to point out all of the areas that Balisaria thinks are, um, you know, important to pay attention to in light of liberation and um, thinking through different types of struggles. Like, I mean, you're right, it is dated for sure also, but he does pay some special attention to like the liberation of women in mm -hmm. an interesting way um, and a few other pieces too. Um, though something I thought that was really interesting in this chapter is that he has um, a pretty like nuanced and good way of talking about colonialism in ways that are, you know, that pay attention to the economic part of it, mm -hmm. but also pay attention to the like the cultural part of it too, like the cultural domination yeah. part of it. Um, let me read this piece to you and we can think about it for a minute. So under a heading that's called Christianity and Colonialism, Balseria writes, a clear example of theological and spiritual deviation from Jesus Christ was the church's unquestioned acceptance of West European models of expansion for its own growth. A great observation that I think is kind of obvious, but like, man, I don't know. People don't say it enough. <laughs> um, he goes on to say, an expansion becomes an ultimate value. The church was conceived of as the only means of salvation for the world. The preaching of the gospel was undertaken for the expansion of the church, in this case Catholicism, the subordination of non-European peoples to the Roman pontiff in all matters of religion. And then he goes on a little bit later to say this. Um, it's all tied together, so it's a little bit lengthy, but important. He says, uh, you know, in, in doing that, in kind of like trying to, um, you know, <laughs> be fishers of men of all nations <laughs> in uh, maybe the worst way possible, he says that in the religious expression of non-Western Christians in worship, art, architecture, and music, there's been some ch some change, especially after independence of Asia and African countries. In the Americas, white Western culture has been imposed as the, as the dominant way of life. In Africa and Asia, the churches have been rather reluctant to accept indigenous cultures as having religious value as capable of replacing Western cultural elements. Um, oh, and then he says, there's a willingness to accept the externals of another culture, but a distrust of its inner core if it's closely linked with another religion. Um, I like this idea or this point here is that um, it's important because uh, it's not that like Christianity is just like an idea that um, gets, I don't know, like applied to different cultures and different cultures can kind of take and do with it what they will, though that happens often, you know, but that's not the way that I think like a lot of Christian churches want it to be right. They want they want the Christianity that they evangelize to people in, you know, whatever in Asian and African countries to look like the Christianity of the West. Mm -hmm. They want it to be, you know, the same 
the same. And um, I, I was thinking a little bit even uh, of a few months ago when we talked about Jean Margella, the Cameroonian priest um, who talked about, you know, the, the complicated um, kind of relationship that an African church might have to the, the story of the exodus of Egypt or to the, even the use of like grapes and Eucharist because mm-hmm. of like the, uh, the supply chain. Um, anyways, those are good examples of maybe what he's talking about here, but j- just the ways that, um, that the, the whole, like the, the notion of Western Christianity is like, it's not just like sort of neutral. It's, it's like hostile towards the, um, like the cultures, um, of other, um, other places, other regions, uh, because they might be associated with like, you know, some kind of other religion and that's too scary. Um, but a great point to draw this out that, uh, colonialism, it, uh, it functions at all these different levels, right? It's not just economic. It's also something that's cultural and there's like a type of chauvinism involved with it that needs to be, uh, considered and rejected, I think. Yeah. The idea too, that, uh, it's not only, um, I don't know, these kind of like cultural pieces that uh, Western Christians are nervous about, but it's really uniquely the pieces that are most tied to another religion as almost like a competitor religion. I think that is uh, pretty interesting as well. Um, and Balasuria, again, because he's in a Christian minority country, has done all kinds of other work, and including elsewhere in this book, on thinking through what does it mean to take other uh, religious people and religious ideas and so on seriously not as like something that you have to metabolize into Christianity, but as something you have to like understand on its own terms and sort of find ways to work together on. And there's a kind of attention to a pluralism in Balasuria that I think a lot of other Christians are nervous to fully say. Even like, you know, if you read uh, all kinds of Vatican documents, um, including Pope Francis, I think there's a, a, a real tension around these kinds of issues happening even right now. Like, uh, you can read, for instance, um, Pope Francis's stuff on the Amazon Synod, where you can kind of watch in real time, like the bishops and Pope Francis kind of trying to parse out, like, what is sort of um, uniquely Catholic or Christian, and what is like a colonial wrapping of that, and how much room is there really to onboard indigenous uh, culture and kind of make it compatible or syncretic with syncretic with Christianity, and then how much of it is like, beyond the pale or Christianity can't handle that, etc. And what I like about Balasuria is in that pluralism, he's not only, it's not like a kind of liberal, like everybody can kind of do whatever they want because like, who cares? Um, it's more like because these expressions are like full expressions of people's total lives, it's important to uh, find ways to work together and most importantly to build a kind of solidarity. I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves. I'm sure we'll return to this later on. But uh, for Balasuria, that's really the key is like um, identifying the the Christian sort of pieces of colonialism also helps to then say, well, if you really want to decolonize that, you're also going to have to like not view every other religion as, you know, something that ultimately you have to like destroy at the end of your conversation or at the end of your your interaction with somebody, which, again, I think is like implicit in a lot of even like progressive engagements with uh, other other religions. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of of that kind of, this might be a good place to start interjecting some of Balasuria's like um, relationship to liberation theology in, into it. I mean, you'd mentioned this before we started uh, recording that uh, it doesn't necessarily come out explicitly in some of the chapters that we read, but it does other places in the book. 
Um, because, you know, it's like there are there are particular hermeneutics that Balisaria sees as being like important to Christianity that like, you know, kind of get beyond the um, like like the, the colonial wrappings of it. Right. Like a lot of it has to do with, you know, thinking through the Christian commitments to other people um, in terms of like loving your neighbor and so on and like what that means. But Dean, you were, you were talking to me earlier about like a, a tension kind of with liberation theology. Maybe this is a good place to start talking about that a bit. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. You know, Balasaria knew liberation theologians and from Latin America in particular uh, is kind of what I'm referring to here and worked with them and promoted them. And he draws from them in this book too. So uh, it's not like he doesn't like it, but he does have a kind of like, I don't even know if I'd say it's a criticism, but maybe like a word of caution about it where he suggests liberation theology. It comes from so many extremely particular contexts, right? Like Gutierrez is writing from Peru in a pretty important way. Uh, Leonardo Boff is writing from Brazil in an important way. And those contexts uh, are important. And Balasuri, I think, wants to say that every theology has a sort of contextual origin. He says that in this book as well. But the challenge is to create what he sort of titles the book as a planetary theology, a theology that um, is always kind of accountable to contexts, but can be maybe uh, more universalizing in a way that's not like colonizing or uh, available to all. And the sort of mediating principle he uses for that is really a principle of solidarity, that that's the thing that uh, mediates all kinds of um different contexts and and so on. And so it's not the obliteration of difference or the assumption that like, oh, these people have only a part of it. These people have part of it. And eventually we kind of have the one big thing that, you know, <laughs> trumps everything else. But to say like, what is really the, the kind of unifier uh, such that like a person like me living in Canada could really read li liberation theology and sort of find a way into it, you know, that doesn't require me to like pretend or assume that I'm a Latin American person, right? Which is, I think is like something a lot of people who read liberation theology, including myself sort of do um, implicitly or explicitly. You, you sort of, there's a temptation to like read yourself into a context that really isn't yours and uh, then kind of create some kind of awkward analogies between what's happening there and like, what you want to do, you know, in your own situation. And uh, so that challenge of Balasiria to create a planetary theology, it's uh, a really unique one. And it's one, too, that isn't, like, totally foreign to liberation theologians either. Um, Leonardo Boff, I forget where he says this, but probably in a number of places. Um, anyway, he has said that for him, the key of liberation theology is actually to find out what is the contribution it could make to a more universal theology as well, to a truly Catholic theology is the way he would put it. Um, so there's lots of stuff like that that happens, you know, within liberation theologians, but Balasuri is definitely like making that a front and center concern in the text. Yeah, totally. He has a lot to say about liberation throughout the text. And, you know, like you said, he's not against it, obviously, <laughs> for liberation. Good to hear. <laughs> but I think it's an important... Um, uh, to me, it was just like it's an important distinction, especially for a podcast like ours, where we're like always trying to read contextual theology and sort of figure out what it means for us, even though we live, you know, uh, in the global north in countries who have um, historically benefited from colonialism. So I don't know, a good tension to bring up and to think about the, you know, how do you how do you interpret the context in the contextual uh, types of theology that you are pulling out from other places in the world? So it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, an important thing. 
but uh, there is this one piece that I thought kind of spoke to me too from, from this chapter really briefly and we can move on. But he was kind of, uh, Balser is sort of justifying why, um, why it is important that like even, you know, the Christians everywhere kind of like start figuring this stuff out and like really questioning the, the Western, the Western wrappings of Christianity. Sometimes not even wrappings, right? Sometimes like the deep, the deep structure <laughs> that uh, Western powers have kind of like bred into Christianity, I guess. Um, but he says this, this is, this is why Christians should care because Christians are at the centers of power and decision-making. They can influence the course of future human evolution so the task is an urgent one. Millions of lives depend on it, but it cannot be achieved without a deep transformation of all Christians, a process of death, resurrection, dying to an exploitive world in order to rise with the whole of humankind in justice, sharing, and personal fulfillment. Um, sometimes, <laughs> this is stupid, but, you know, sometimes, like, theology can be, like, really high-minded, and you can be like, well, all this is really important. You have to think about, you know, the resurrection in this really particular way, or you have to think about salvation in this particular way. And it's like, why, why are we doing this again? And just a nice reminder, uh, Christians need to think about this stuff really hard because Christians, because of like the particular like colonial powers, Christians find themselves in places of power and they should really think about it. You know, <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's uh, sometimes more true and less true in different places, but um, like it or not, like Christianity is like a, a pretty big hegemonic power in the global North. And uh, because of that, people should really, consider <laughs> consider the ways that uh, Christianity has both contributed to the problem and maybe could be like a way to not save the world, but probably parse out some of the solutions. Yeah. I think that's also the big thing that's fascinating to me about Belisuria is that uh, Christianity's role or job, I guess, is not to be the sole savior of the planet. <laughs> like uh, Belisuria makes that distinction a number of times throughout the book that Christians have like a unique and important and essential role to play in changing the world. And we should offer that role and play it where it's appropriate and so on. But it's also very important to not assume that Christians have the exclusive right to changing the world. And he, one thing I like about it is he'll often like just pull out numbers. I guess maybe that's like what economists do, but he'll be like, Christians are like a third of the planet. So like, we're just not going to change at all. <laughs> like there's this kind of recognition that, you know, there, there are limitations here and you shouldn't get caught up in the, uh, um, I don't know, like the, the sort of fantasy, I guess, of Christianizing every single person on the planet in order, like as a prerequisite to getting, you know, justice or, or whatever it might be. And I think that is also a pretty rare thing. He even at one point goes on to say, uh, Jesus, you know, encourages his followers to go out and make disciples and uh, to even save the nations and so on. Uh, but Balasteria says, it seems from what Jesus says in the biblical narrative that that's like a task that will just go on for all of eternity or well, all of human history until the end of time, like until eternity, you know, erases history or whatever, however you might want to put it. And so he's like, you should, we should just sort of accept that that's an incomplete task, uh, which I think is also a really, you know, important thing for Christians to hear because there's a <laughs> Christians love to get too high on our own supply. I think that's the the big temptation to be like, we have the, the big story that's going to save everybody else. And if everybody else just gets the story right, uh, everything else will fall into place. But Belisari is like, it is actually harder than that. <laughs> you have to like learn how to make friends. And that's a uh, tough stuff. Yeah, I think so. Um, if you need a, another book about this particular problem of Christians saving the world, you should go 
get um, Marika Rose's new book and read it because she tackles that problem explicitly. Yeah. So it's great. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> um, Dean, tell, tell me about what he has to say about Marxism and Christianity. <laughs> just just lay, it, lay it on me. This is the stuff that I need right now. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Balasaria, this is a good pivot into the, the next chapter because um, he brings it up there. The chapter, the church is called to radical conversion. You know, you might be thinking, okay, to Balasaria, he says, we've got to get rid of all this uh, colonial mindset, rethink our kind of Christian traditions and so on, but how are we ever going to do it? And guess what? He has a plan. He has a variety of pieces of advice to help you sort it out. And Balasuria thinks that capitalism is the the ultimate sort of uh, planetary destroying economic reality that we live in. And he makes no really uh, apologies for being a, a socialist on purpose. Um, he does kind of complicate socialism. Like he'll say, you know, there's Marxist socialists, there's other kinds of socialists. He is clearly appealing to a more like non-aligned movement kind of thing in the text. Like he's like the Soviet union. It's done some great stuff. Uh, it also has these severe limitations and, you know, we shouldn't be compelled to like be under its control. He'll say things like that. Um, he is a huge fan of, uh, the Chinese revolution specifically, probably unsurprisingly being in Sri Lanka. So lots of interesting relationships to actually exist existing, uh, socialism, but the key for him is if we want to uh, kind of divest from the colonialism of Western Christianity, that has to pull in uh, a real economic uh, alternative, which for him is socialism. So there's a great bit where he talks about Christianity and Marxists specifically, and then another section where he talks about Christians and socialists specifically. And I think they're both worth reading, but I thought I'd pull out just one uh, kind of piece here that sort of summarizes what he thinks that Christians and Marxists can do for each other, which is the question that we often ask on the show or get asked elsewhere. So Belisari says this, Marxists can teach Christians some aspects of the social significance of the gospel. Christians must be humble enough to accept this. They can also help Christians evaluate their methods, for the Marxist impact has been through methods that have emphasized the formation of persons and action programs in real situations. Today, when there's an increasing alienation of youth, workers, and intellectuals from the traditional institutional aspects of the church, that's in 1984, by the way, <laughs> uh, dialogue with Marxists can be a great help to the church in discerning areas of relevant action, analyzing them, and choosing action strategies while maintaining its critical judgment on them. So Marxists can really help Christians sort out all these kind of uh, social situations. He says, Christians, on the other hand, can bear witness to the human values of freedom and justice to Marxists especially where Marxists are in power and tend to be authoritarian. Religions can help to humanize revolutionary processes, provided the religions remain faithful to their calling to bear witness to genuine, integral human liberation. And he often cites uh, Nicaragua and the Sandinistas in particular as kind of the, the, the example of that, or a, at least like high watermark example of it, where the Christians in the revolution really contributed this... Uh, kind of loving energy to the revolution or uh, an energy not based on hatred, but on sort of these upbuilding and, you know, uh, more, I guess, like, I don't know, more vibes based socialism. <laughs> just really trying to like help people uh, figure out how to be nice to each other and so on that uh, Christians can find a way to, you know, I guess uh, help to, um, to stem the blood, you know, like uh, revolutions are often violent um, Balasuri says, you know, we can have complicated opinions about that, but the key is that Christians should work really hard to, uh, to reduce those kind of inevitable 
uh, problems that come with violence, like hatred and toxicity and trauma and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, Marxists can tell Christians how to figure out what to do in the world. Christians can help Marxists figure out how to uh, how to chill out, <laughs> how to not be so mean. Yeah, I like that point a lot, actually. You know, there's something outside of Christianity that has something important to offer to Christianity. That is something that Christians need to hear, especially like evangelicals, I think, big time, right? <laughs> the uh, the way the world works, according to, I think, more conservative and evangelical types of Christianity, is that uh, the Bible is the instruction book for life, and that's the only thing that you need. But um, I think that there's like this really interesting broader view that Belisaria gives in this book. Um, here's a little, here's another piece that kind of like explains how he thinks this works. And I think he's kind of right. So uh, later on in the same chapter, he says the world or secular reality is a complicated term already, <laughs> but fair enough. The, the world is also a subject of Christian mission and not merely a term or an object. The world can bear a message from God to Christians also, as well as to the churches individually and collectively. God is present in all reality by the power and love of creation. The spirit of God is in the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to give his life for the world. God cares for the world more than he does for the churches. Churches began only about 1,950 years ago, whereas humans have been on this earth for hundreds and thousands of years. Okay. <laughs> um, anyways, the, the point here is, you know, people people say very flippantly that all, all truth is God's truth or something, um, which is, um, you know, when you have like a bumper sticker, things become basically meaningless as rhetoric. But I think this is kind of that same point, right? That, um, that, that uh, I don't know. God, God's truth remains in the world, even if it's not specifically in the Bible or if it's not in scripture or in church's tradition. There's like other types of revelation, I guess, that uh, God can make to the church. And sometimes the church just needs to like chill out and hear it for a second. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, he goes on to say a little bit later in this uh, chapter, he says, historically, too, churches have been often evangelized by secular society. It was persons who were not close to the churches who helped open churches to such values as modern science, democracy, socialism, and women's liberation, the emancipation of workers, youth, and the peoples of the third world. It's a good point. <laughs> I mean, the whole the whole thing is that like Christianity has uh, been uncritical of its uh, acceptance of like Western cultural values. You have to think that like there are all these people out there who have helped open Christianity up to these values and be like more critical about them. And like, you know, those ideas aren't coming necessarily from within Christianity, at least not explicitly sometimes, um, but they're coming from outside. And I think that's a really interesting uh, observation, I think. And, and it does kind of contribute towards his bigger idea of uh, Christianity uh, building solidarity rather than like trying to get people all on the same theological page or something. Um, so anyways, I think that's a good, a good word. And one that I think, uh, I don't know, we can think about a little bit more, especially as we're thinking about the dialogue between Marxists and Christians. It's a, it's a great point. Yeah. I think that it's also, um, it's interesting as he reads kind of like the history of, uh, liberation movements in general, because the, the question is like, why do we even need to have them if Christianity has had such a, uh, a deep role yeah. in changing the world, right? And like, if Christians could do it on their own, then they would, but they didn't. So we needed help. And he makes that point with respect to the development of Marxism. He basically says, like, in the 1800s, 
the working classes didn't feel helped by the church. And so inevitably you get something like the communist manifesto, you know, people who are like, well, then we're just not going to seek it. <laughs> we're going to do something different. And, uh, he also says, I think it's here or elsewhere. I've been reading a bunch of his stuff lately, so it's kind of all blurring together for me, but, um, maybe it'll jog your memory too, Matt. Uh, he talks about, uh, the French revolution as well being like this thing that, you know, it's like an incredible sort of, uh, moment in in history, like a trauma in history, even, and the church took like a century to sort of figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and he he goes on. He says he says the same thing about the USSR. Yeah, exactly. Too, right? Yeah, the, the it was this huge monumental moment in history, and the church is still figuring out what to do with yeah. it. Yeah, and well, I mean, obviously, it makes sense in 1984, but <laughs> you get the picture exactly. And I think that's uh, an interesting insight, right? That the church is. Um, you know, in some ways it's ahead of its time on, on a number of issues and in other ways it needs to be sort of brought along or uh, helped to figure out what the heck is going on. And that idea that there is wisdom for the church in secular society is really profound. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Um, I like it a lot. I, I, you know, I can imagine the evangelical response to this would be like, well, of course, you just want to accept all of these things that are <laughs> that society is giving you, you big, dumb idiot. You should just read your Bible or something. But I think that the um, the important piece here, though, is is that there is like, you know, a real Christian impulse towards these things, like towards justice and like, you know, seeking seeking out how how to love your neighbor in a really good way. Right. I think that is within Christianity. But it does take these outside movements to think really systemically about those and like help Christians also like connect the dots there. So I don't know. I guess all I'm trying to say is that it's like the the connection here is not just like uh, society, secular society, whatever that might mean, hoisting like weird liberation movements upon Christianity mm-hmm. and then Christians accepting them. But I think it's like kind of a, a two way. Yeah, here. yeah. Christians have this impulse and then like they're getting they're getting this in a in a helpful way that helps them like live out these impulses right uh, that are you know pretty normative to christianity okay so there is something in secular society that christians should get uh or should pay attention to or whatever um but uh here's where the the real challenging rhetoric starts where balisteria starts talking about things like mission and evangelism and conversion and uh, these are terms that I feel pretty allergic to in general, but Belisaria has <laughs> tried hard to make it make more sense. Um, so, Matt, I'm going to actually give it to you because I know you pulled out a few quotes here. Um, I'm going to let you start it. Uh, why? <laughs> All right. If we're supposed to learn stuff from secular society, what's the sort of uh, mission or evangelism angle that we still have? The Magnificast uh, Bible <laughs> School evangelistic angle here is this. He He starts talking about it in a few ways, and... He uses, I think, a, a pretty common revolutionary rhetoric of people who are interested in liberation theology. Um, there's a heading of a chapter called A New Type of Person. And uh, I'll, I'll get around to this more specifically in one second, but it's just worth parsing it out in this way, I think. So Balisaria says, Churches and all groups concerned with the future of humanity must try to bring into being a new type of person whose loyalty to humankind and to our planetary home is primary. Such a person would not neglect her or his own home, locality, country, but rather so care for each other as not to hurt others on the earth. So there's this like, you know, this sense in Christianity always that, you know, when uh, when you're saved, when you say the sinner's prayer, when you kind of come into the Christian community in whatever fuller sense, uh, you become a new type of person, right? That's That's a pretty common trope within Christianity. 
Um, but what he's saying here is that like it's bigger than even that, right? It's bigger than than just like <laughs> I don't know some kind of like individualistic or consumerist way of thinking about um, about Christianity. And he goes on to say that there's actually like all kinds of other ways that Christians should like interpret that type of you know new becoming that type of new being uh to be and i think that like the place he gets is super interesting because it ends up you know um what he ends up saying is basically that like evangelism is not about making sure people all believe in christianity and or or in god in, in just the right way right it's about building solidarity among people and like doing just like what i mentioned right to, to care for each other so as not to hurt others and the earth and like all and all of that kind of means. So, so it's not really like the um, it's not the conversion, the perfection of the Christian empire so that everyone is like a tithes giving member of a local church, <laughs> but it's building like a particular community of people uh, where you like actually kind of have solidarity um, in a way that is different than just like, you know, having an in group of church people that you belong to. Yeah, he has a great kind of criticism of traditional mission that way, where he says that it's too privatized, um, too individual. He even calls it asocial, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, he uh, he says, you know, the church sets up all kinds of institutions. Um, he notes uh, parishes, schools, hospitals, social service centers, development projects, etc. But they're not really like designed to transforming uh, society. And in fact, they reproduce capitalism or they kind of prepare people. They teach people how to be better capitalists. That's sort of the, the maybe secondary goal with the primary goal being promoting the church itself. And by contrast, he says a renewed planetary concept of mission and evangelism has to give priority to the fostering of relationships of solidarity among persons and peoples based on the biblical values of the rule of righteousness, the kingdom of God. The churches must be directly and primarily concerned with just relationships among peoples and in regard to nature so that human life may be happy and fulfilling for all within the limits of our human capabilities and the resources of nature. And he goes on to say, uh, a new ecclesiology or self-understanding of the churches is implied by such an orientation. They are to be part of the movement of humanity to go forward collectively toward the kingdom of God in the course of the evolution of human history over time and space. The understanding of God's word has to be in this context Worship should relate relate to this collective effort, should motivate, purify, and celebrate it. And I wanted to pull that part out here because uh, there might be a temptation to be like, okay, so Belisarius says it's just solidarity, so he's sort of emptying out any kind of Christian specificity. And I think for Belisarius, it's actually the opposite. It's like, uh, it's the Christian specificity uh, that kind of, gives the the drive or motivation to have a more general understanding of what solidarity really inquires, what it actually does, so that building solidarity with others rather than like consuming them or like <laughs> turning them like the Borg into exactly the kind of Catholic that you are or whatever, um, building that solidarity is the expression of like having been formed in a Christian way. And I think that is also a, a hard thing to, to sort out and uh, important too, because again, Balsaria is not like, He's not like a liberal German Protestant theologian, right? He's not like whatever secular society does is just how it is. And Christianity has to like figure out how to speak the language of secular society or, or perish. Instead, I think he's saying like, if you're really formed by a deep participation in Christian life, inevitably you're going to have a, a more planetary or solidary 
perspective. And uh, I think that that is at least the kind of Christianity that I would love to be formed by in particular. I mean, I think it all rules. I'm really into that whole thing. I think that's great. But let's let's take it like one step further alongside Balasaria, because I think uh, what you said makes a lot of sense. But then he like I feel like makes it a little bit more extreme (laughs) and um, and maybe a way that you wouldn't expect, like someone who is actual clergy in the Catholic Church to, to do it. So here's here's a little bit more. Balasaria says at the national level, Christian communions must endeavor to close the gaps between them. One way would be for all churches to relate more actively to the needs of the people and liberation from being oppressed or oppressor toward more just human relationships. In this, churches must learn to listen to the poor, the weak, the disadvantaged, the marginalized. In doing so, they will be closer to the people and they will hear better the demands of the gospel. Churches should be able to dialogue together on their responses to these demands. What resources do they have? What obstacles have to be faced? What steps can they take together and separately these are normal stages in a planning process that churches should be able to meet interdenominationally as such issues and in joint action move towards post-denominational repro- uh, reproachment. I like this a lot because it's like he's kind of <laughs> putting his money where money where the mouth is, I guess, or maybe some other kind of <laughs> metaphor. I'm not exactly sure. But it's like it's not just that like Christians should be more chill towards one another or something, but it's like that Christians in general should like have some kind of like big Christian (laughs) committee or like (laughs) party or I don't know something, right. Some big Christian commitment towards like actually helping people um, who are marginalized and disadvantaged in the world and like askew their denominational differences. Or he says here in a more, I think kind and better way, like finding what steps can be taken together and which have to be separate Um, but I think this is, this is cool because it's not like, okay, if you spent any time on the internet, um, you've had someone tell you in a sort of like theological setting to, you know, repent and submit to the Pope. Right. And like, that's like a Catholic position or or something that someone might say, (laughs) but this is not what Belisaria is telling you. Right. It's not the, the point isn't that you have to be like, uh, you have to be a specific type of Catholic and you have to have a specific expression of faith. It's that all Christians can kind of like be on the same page about this one thing at the very least. And that like Christians should just do that. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, I, the phrase of, of trying to close the gaps between them is very cool. Um, uh, you know, just, just the, the differences, they can be theologically important and historically important and ecclesiologically important or whatever. But um, the, <laughs> but you should be doing the same thing kind of regardless together. And I think that's something really interesting. Yeah, and he also, I mean, again, institutionally, he is like a person of institutions in a way that I think is pretty impressive. Uh, He talks pretty briefly about the World Council of Churches in here being a way that Protestants have found to kind of uh, come together on a number of issues. Um, He's doing all this work with Eatwat. You know, there's this uh, real sense that he's also trying to build the institutions and not just write about them, which I think is pretty impressive. Um, it's interesting, too, that you get this uh, vision that he's offering. Um, you get a kind of realization of that in a lot of post-revolutionary countries. Like in China, you know, K.H. Ting uh, was an Anglican bishop, but he built this sort of like post-denominational form of Christianity or uh, you see something similar in Cuba. It's not like the Presbyterians have quit being Presbyterians, but there's a, an emphasis on ec- ecumenism. You know, it's like the Presbyterians, the Methodists, they're all there with their own kind of way of thinking or tradition or history. But 
they uh, they're committed to a revolutionary process or even less so like even here in Canada, the United Church of Canada, which is a totally unique thing, is like an amalgamation of a handful of uh, Protestant denominations. So there's this sense that like, you know, uh, other people have intuited this or gotten pretty far on it. But I like that uh, as a Catholic, Ballesteria is being like, yeah, we should push that a lot further. Um, maybe uh, one last thing, because we're getting toward the end here. I wanted to pull out some stuff on uh, Christian mission to the first world, which I think is a really fascinating section in this chapter. Um, there is, you know, a long history of Christian mission to the third world, and that brings along its colonial trappings and so on. But Balasiria really puts it on its head, arguing that Christians have to, uh, to treat the first world as a mission field. And it's a really fun, uh, section. It is, uh, pretty challenging, but I'll pull out just one passage. He says, Christian mission to Europe and North America is a matter of urgent necessity because it is these countries that do the most harm to humanity and nature as a whole, exercise more power for good or evil, call themselves Christians and hence are more damaging to the witness of the gospel, and are more dehumanized, more alienated from the values of the kingdom, and more difficult to convert. Such a mission is less romantic, less satisfying to our sense of paternalism, and yet more necessary for the self-purification of the churches, because they benefit from the exploitative social system of the first world. Uh, there's a lot more that he says in this section, but I think that is, uh, it's somewhat funny, but also extremely true <laughs> that like, it's actually harder to evangelize people in Europe and North America because like everybody's already a Christian, you know, there's a kind of like Kierkegaardian point here, I guess, uh, but politicized by saying, well, um, these people aren't sort of evangelized in the way that Balasaria is arguing that it sort of uh, hinges on encountering a version of Jesus that uh, pushes you into solidarity. That's the thing that, like, uh, Christians in these countries have a harder time getting. Um, and what I really especially like about Belisari's presentation is it's really made without resentment. Like, he has a real uh, kind of remarkable capacity for being, like, it's a process for everybody. Like some people don't know that they are so um, tied into these violent systems and it's like hard work to sort it out. Uh, but it's like work that we have to do. It's like, that's the evangelistic task is to sort of help people in oppressive uh, countries and relationships really come to terms with exactly what their life is like and kind of make a, a conversion that demands something different. Yeah, I think so. You know, this is from 1984. So maybe some different assumptions coming in here. But I, I keep thinking back, though, to, you know, all of these conversations in uh, especially the U.S., but I mean, it's happening in the U.K. too, where like church attendance is like spiraling down, right? Less and less young people are attending church or identifying as Christians anymore. And it makes me wonder, too, though, like, how does <laughs> how would this piece kind of fit into that conversation even? Like, is there is there something actually like maybe appealing about this uh, to people who have rejected Christianity even? I, I don't know. It, it, it's, I guess, maybe beyond <laughs> beyond the point. But all I'm trying to say here is that uh, this is why young people are leaving the church, <laughs> is that there's no solidarity, man. But Balasuria makes um, that point himself uh, in the text as well. He says that that is really the key to um, authentically uh, forming people to, to see the church as like a live option for their life. And he points to, in 1984, the, uh, the trend of, um, religious orders not reproducing themselves, you know, the crisis of vocations, people don't want to be priests anymore, uh, young people don't identify with the church, and so on. So it was a conversation then, too, and this is Balasari's bet, that if you uh, 
if you made the church a uh, an institution known for its solidarity, people would be interested in, in being part of it. And, uh, you know, to his credit, like that's what he did in Sri Lanka. Like he set up a uh, a whole center for kind of like Christian thinking about social justice, but also action like they had all these uh, social programs. Um, it still exists. And uh, I just saw I think I tweeted this the other day. Maybe we can put it in the show notes somewhere. But there was a. Uh, collection of documents at Princeton of just digitized essays by Balasuria, and a lot of them are published through that particular institution. And like that is his evangelistic effort is to be like, you know, building that kind of Christianity that is attractive because it matters. <laughs> it isn't just like a boring thing that your parents drag you to, but is like a means of survival and liberation like that. You know, that's the kind of thing that people want to be part of. Uh, and the rest of it is probably not as important, not as interesting. All right. So listen up all of you, uh, you bishops and superintendents <laughs> and, uh, other, other church bureaucracy people out there who listen to our podcast, you can hire us on for a thousand dollars an hour <laughs> to help you solve why young people aren't coming to your church. We've given you this much so far, but, uh, if you just give us some cash, we can tell you the rest of it for sure. That's right. It's our new Magnificast consulting firm. We will, uh, come into the diocese. We'll help you rebuild your brand. (laughs) Um, and we're going to get those young people back in church by teaching them how to make cool signs for the big, uh, picket, or, uh, we're going to teach them all about the world system of capitalism. And, uh, I tell you what, they're going to be in those pews for the rest of their life. I mean, no one's tried it yet, and I feel like (laughs) you might as well give it a shot. Literally, what do you have to lose? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing that I can think of. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can get some early episodes when we get them done on time, which is... Um, it's going to happen more in the future. <laughs> right now, things are still crazy, but I promise we will get them done on time sometime soon. <laughs> um, you also get access to our Behind the Paywall podcast called uh, The Lock-In, which is great. Uh, that will You'll get all kinds of other great uh, information about the young people and how to get them into your church on that podcast for sure. Um, and you also get an invite to our Behind the Paywall Discord channel where we have great conversations about, I don't know, all kinds of things. Um, usually, usually the episodes and then like whatever's kind of happening in the world. Um, the smartest group chat I've ever been a part of. And it's great. Uh, all right. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by the logical spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have